0: This morning, um, as we talk to these kids, we think about Father's Day, and we, we think about wanting to pass on our faith, and that's really what Father's Day for Christians is all about. I, I want to show you a picture of a guy I met in Israel. His name is Joe Shulam. You, you could Google him and see all kinds of things about him. He's a he's quite a, a scholar of Scripture. Um, he grew up in Jerusalem, was Jewish. When he was 14 years old, he was assigned a paper in middle school. ...to write about the differences between Christianity and Judaism. And, and it just happened while he was writing this paper... ...there was a, a, a Christian missionary, actually a Church of Christ missionary... ...there in Jerusalem who lived in his neighborhood. And he, he talked about it to him and the missionary said to him... ...the biggest thing you got to figure out is... ...is, is Jesus a, a, a terrible liar or is he really the Lord? And at 14 years old, Joe studied himself into be, becoming a Christian... He was immediately kicked out of his house, and over the last decades, he's now 72 years old, he travels the world talking about Christianity and Judaism and how they fit. I was sitting with a friend with him with breakfast one morning, and just asking about his life and and all the people he, he had led to the Lord. He told me and a friend he had baptized over 1,500 Jewish people and over 400 Gentiles, and so my friend asked him, said, you know, Joe, you're, you're getting up in years. How do you pass this on to your disciples underneath you? Because he trains lots of men. And immediately I saw his head drop. I saw his face grimace. And his voice became very sad. And here's what he said to us. The single greatest disappointment in my life is that I've not been able to pass on my passion for reaching the lost to my disciples. That was great disappointment in his life. And guys, many of us feel that same challenge of how do we pass it on. You as Christians today in a post-Christian culture, we see churches closing weekly. We see churches shrinking. And and so we all think, how are we going to pass this on? Surveys of fathers say, the father, a Christian father's number one fear is they will not be able to pass their faith on to their, their children. Now, here's what I want you to see as we go to Luke today. Jesus shared that same concern. He knows his days on earth are numbered, and he's going to pass on his faith. Go to Romans chapter 6. Look with me at verse 11 and get the context of what we're going to study this morning. Romans 6 verse 11. Jesus had already perturbed the Pharisees. In the beginning of chapter 6, he breaks some of their Sabbath rules. And they're really angry. Look at verse 11. But the Pharisees and teachers of law were furious. And they began to discuss one another what they might do with Jesus. Jesus knows this. His days are numbered. So his challenge is, what's going to happen when they do something to me? What is going to happen to this faith I want to pass on? And that's when Jesus picks his apostles. Listen to verses 12 through 16. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose apostles of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he called Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became the traitor. Now, guys, this is quite an impressive list that mean a lot to history. And we're familiar with this. You know, we we like when when someone is famous and accomplished a lot— We name buildings and statues and monuments uh, to them. some of our more famous presidents. Uh, If you go to New York City, you'll see the George Washington Bridge because we revere him. You go to D.C., you'll see the Reagan International Airport. If you go out in the Midwest, you encounter the Lincoln Highway. Why? Because we revere those men. Now, some presidents even name buildings after themselves before they died. So you can see that picture. Now the thing about all of these buildings and all of these names is that they will all one day vanish. All these buildings will be destroyed or either the names might be changed. You know, if you've been reading the paper over the last few weeks, there's a a, a building at Yale University named after a slaveholder, James Calhoun, that they've taken the name off and renamed it. But here's what I want you to know to signify the importance of these apostles. They are named to something that's eternal. Look at Revelation chapter 21 with me. Let's read starting in verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to mountain great and high. John's getting this revelation. God showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It showed with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that, a very precious jewel. Like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, with the twelve angels of the gates. Now watch this. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them was the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. These men are so significant that they are put on a building in which their names will last forever because there's the foundation of everything that Jesus wanted to accomplish. So we're going to look at how Jesus passed on his faith to them. But first of all, I want to make a significant point here, at least it is to me. The significant point is that Jesus chose men. Now, a few weeks ago, Mother's Day, I hope you heard that message, we talked from the Gospel of Luke about all the unexpected roles in Luke and Acts that we saw women play. A lot of roles, quite frankly, that many of us have not allowed women to play in the church today. So you know I'm convicted about that, and I believe that. But I also believe it, it is possible to affirm the role Scripture gives to women and at the same time affirm male leadership. Jesus broke down many barriers. If he wanted to, he could have broke down this barrier of the apostles and named women, but he didn't because Jesus knew the importance of this role and men playing this role. Now I want to make a couple points here that really ought not to have to be made. But in our culture today, they need to be made. Number one is that men are different, all right? I mean, you know, we live in a culture today where our culture is full of, here's what I would call it, gender confusion. You know, your gender is not assigned to you by God, according to modern America. You choose your gender. I was listening to NPR radio the other day, and they were celebrating a mother and her small son, five years old, going to kindergarten, who decided he wanted to dress like a girl, and this was a wonderful thing. Because you, in today's world, are able to choose. Now, guys, this is leading to all kinds of confusion. And it doesn't represent what we all know is true, biologically, physically, emotionally, is that men and women are different. In fact, I I love the book written years ago that men are from Mars and women are from where? Venus. I I thought it should have been Pluto, okay? I mean, we're we're, we're so very different. Anybody who studies human beings knows that. And so we are different and yet we're complementary. And so men are different, but men are also important. There's sort of an underlying assumption to this movement in our nation today is that men are... Disposable. In a family, it's not that important to have a man. You know, it just shouldn't make really a difference. But the truth is, men are not disposable. Every study says children who grow up without a man, significant man in their life, are more prone to do drugs, more prone to get in trouble with the law, more prone to be criminals. Now, I'm not saying that this morning to to make any of you single moms feel guilty because you understand this more than I do. As a church, we want to do our best job for those children in our church who don't have good role, male role models to make them have them. But the facts are indisputable. Even some, some very uh, left-wing universities like Princeton and the University of Texas have done research on this and have come up to go, You know what? Men are important. Now, we wouldn't be surprised at that. So often in our culture, we, you know, on a TV sitcom, we, we present men as sort of being the bumbling idiots who never can get anything right. That's why I think so many of us have been drawn to the really popular sitcom on NBC called This Is Us because it was the father who played that significant role in that family. Here's what I want you to know this morning. Fathers, men, you play an important, different role in the passing on your faith to your children. Too often in even Christian circles, we've left that to women to our own detriment. There's a study that was done from 1994 to the year 2000 in Switzerland uh, about men and their impact on their children when it came to their faith. Here's what they concluded. They found astonishing facts with regard to the generational transmission of faith and religious values. In short, the study revealed, here's a quotation it is a religious practice of the father or the family that above all determines the future attendance or absence from children in the church. Fathers, you play a big role. There's another study that says this about people's relationship with God. If one's own father was a positive presence in your life, you are more likely to have a positive relationship with God. Now, that's not surprising. Because when you grow up with a good, good father, I think of Tim and his father, what a special, special man. I mean, it's easy for Tim to envision God being a gracious, wonderful father. But if you didn't grow up with a strong father, at times it turns the opposite on you. And that when you hear the idea of God being a father, it actually turns you off. And so it's significant here, men, that our role in passing on our faith is so important. And that's why Jesus knew the selections he would make in this passage were so significant. Let's quickly look at how Jesus did this. First of all, Jesus started out in prayer, all right? I mean, Jesus, Luke 6, verse 12 says, he pulled an all-nighter. In fact, the Greek word there for Jesus spending the night in prayer is that Jesus labored in prayer. Only time in the New Testament that word is used. Jesus knew this choice of these 12 men would determine the success or failure of his movement. And so Jesus prayed about it. And let me say this to us. You are never more like Jesus than when you are on your knees asking God to bring forth people to share the gospel. That's what he did. So he spends all night because he wants to do good here. And then he selects them. Look at this purpose here. He selects them and he names them to be apostles. The distinction maybe we need to make today is the distinction between a disciple and an apostle. Some of us use those words almost interchangeably, but they're not. A disciple is a follower, and imitator of Jesus. The truth is, every one of us should be a disciple of Jesus. An apostle was someone specially chosen for a special mission. That's not just used for the 12. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 calls Jesus the apostle of our faith. He was on a special mission from God. But there were these 12 who were selected by Jesus to represent him. It's like this. A few weeks ago, you know, I was in Israel. In some sense, I, I represented the American people. I was an American. You know, when you go to a foreign country, often people think of your country what they think of you. So, so, so in some ways, I did represent America, but I did not have the authority as if I'd been specially selected to be the ambassador to Israel. Because when that man speaks, he speaks with the authority of the entire U.S. government. That's the difference in a disciple and apostle. So Jesus picks these men to carry on this faith. Now, look at these men. Look at, I call them Jesus' people. And then just, just look at the list that you're going to see next. Um, here's the list of the 12 apostles. Now, now, what strikes me as I see this list is, is that these guys are so super ordinary. I mean, six of them are fishermen. Most of them don't have real notable careers. When I, when I used to do youth rallies years ago, I would always do this lesson, and my favorite lesson was on the 12 apostles. And, and, and when I would get up to, to, to start my speech, the first question I'd ask the teenagers was this. If, if, if you were empowered by God to select 12 people to change the world, and you could select anybody in America, who would you pick? And I was always fascinated by their answers because their answers were always some some great political leader or maybe even some movie star that would bring recognition or a sports star that everyone would follow or or some CEO that proved their leadership ability. But the point I was always trying to make is Jesus didn't pick these people. Jesus just picked ordinary people. In fact, Paul refers to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where he says, not many of us have been impressive. Well, why would Jesus pick what we would claim? I mean, he's got the whole world. I mean, he can pick a rabbi, a teacher, a Pharisee. I mean, he's got the world to pick. Why does he pick these guys? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, so that all the glory and honor would go to God. If Jesus picks the sharpest, neatest, Guys on earth and something great happens. Everybody applauds those men. If Jesus can pick simple, ordinary, sinful men and women like you and me, and he can do something great then, then all the glory will go to God. Because some will say, you know, those guys aren't sharp enough. What's happening in that church, it must be from God. But you look at these guys. I mean, the first two listed there, Simon and Andrew. Of their brothers. Andrew's a behind-the-scenes guy. Only thing we really see Andrew doing is bringing someone behind the scenes to meet Jesus, including his brother Simon. Simon is not behind the scenes at all. Simon is always the first apostle listed, and he's known as the leader of the apostles. He's an outspoken, bold man. These guys weren't very They weren't perfect. You look at those next names, James and John. They were brothers. Jesus loved nicknames. He gave them a nickname. He called them the sons of thunder. Now, why did you do this? Because James and John had a problem with their temper. Anybody have a problem with your temper? Some of you raising your hand. That's pretty, pretty cool. James and John had a problem with their temper. In fact, one time, Jesus is going through this village in Samaria, and the people don't treat him well, and they get outside the village. James and John pull Jesus aside and say, Jesus, those people are really rude to you. If you would just command us, we will call down fire from heaven right now and incinerate this village. That sound like loving apostles to you? Well, Jesus is going to change them. And then probably the the, the pair that I would love to put together the most are are one we talked about a couple weeks ago, which was Matthew. And and we talked about what a terrible person a tax collector was. He was a traitor, a rip-off artist. But here's what tickles me, is there's also that guy listed with a Z behind his name, Simon, the Bible calls him the Zealot. Here's the deal. Zealots were a part of a revolutionary political party. Every Jew hated the Romans being over their land. But Zealots especially hated it. So they were willing to revert to guerrilla warfare. It's possible that Simon the Zealot was an assassin. Now, here's sort of the remarkable thing about these 12. Zealots took an oath to kill Roman soldiers. And guess who else? Traitor tax collectors. Can you imagine their small group at night, night, and they're eating hamburgers and fellowship and they hadn't met everybody, and Simon walks up to Matthew, says, what's your name? Matthew says, my name's Matthew. What's your name, Simon? Matthew says, Simon, what do you do? He says, I'm a zealot. Matthew says, I'm in the wrong church, dude. I'm out of here man because listen to me friends if Matthew and Simon had had met in a dark alley in Jerusalem before they met Jesus more than likely Simon would have slit Matthew's neck but we see them come together and so guys as you think about being someone who passes on your faith don't think it's about perfect people it's about people like you and me who have a hard time getting it together but by the power of God are changed In fact, let me make this point. Some of you may not agree with this. But but even one of these guys, Judas Iscariot, he doesn't make it. Some of you parents feel really guilty because some of your children hadn't carried on your faith. I I, I find some comfort that even the perfect Jesus did not keep everybody. It's my belief that though God uses evil people, God never takes away someone's choice. Judas had a choice. And so we see these men that Jesus selected. Now, what, what does Jesus do? And here's how I want to close out, and I'm going to have to hit this really quickly. What was Jesus' strategy to pass on his faith? So if you're a father and you're wanting to pass on your faith, pay close attention to this. If you're an elder, a leader in this church, and you want to pass on your faith to the next generation, because Christianity is always one generation from fading. If you've got some people around you that you want to pour into, listen to how Jesus did it and learn. Number one, Jesus spent time with them. The Gospel of Mark says when he chose them, he chose them so that they might be with him. My friends, you cannot pass on your faith without time. We've got a big misnomer in America today. And that's, as a father, if I'll just give my children quality time, that's all they need. The truth is, every study says quantity time, a lot of time, is quality time. These guys get to spend the next three years hanging out with Jesus, learning from him. Number two, Jesus taught and modeled truth. Here's what's so powerful about Jesus. He wasn't just a great teacher. He wasn't just a great obeyer. He taught And he modeled. Acts 1-1 nails this on the head. Here are the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. My friends, if you only get one of those, you won't pass on your faith. If all you do is teach it, but you don't live it, you'll bring out rebellion. And despite the fact that most of us say all you need to do is live it, if you don't teach it, they're not going to understand it. So Jesus was able to pass on his faith because he embodied the truth of what he taught. And that's not to say that you and I have got to be perfect. Because listen to me, the young people in this church, your children know you're not perfect. But what they do know is if you are for real. And if you live it out in front of them, you'll pass it on. Number three, Jesus was patient and forgiving. Forgiving. I mean, one of the most frustrating and encouraging things about reading the Gospels... Or watching Jesus deal with these 12 characters who don't seem to be able to get it right. I think to myself so often, I would just give up on these guys. I mean, of course, our favorite here that we had not talked about a lot today is Simon Peter, who just, I mean, at a minimum, you'd say he'd just goose it up time after time. Now, in our book, we'd probably give up on him. But Jesus doesn't. And let me say this to you, because as a young man, when someone first encouraged me to start reading the Gospels, it was life-changing to me. And I confess to you that the first time I understood grace, that God gives you what you need and not what you deserve, was watching Jesus and Simon Peter. Peter didn't deserve to be an apostle. He didn't deserve to stay an apostle. And yet Jesus forgave him. And Jesus kept picking him back up. And in fact, in one of the greatest stories of grace, Peter does the unthinkable, he denies Jesus three times. What do even admit he knows him, and then fifty days later, he preaches the first gospel good news sermon. Is that not amazing? And I want you to know as, as followers of Jesus today that he is that same forgiving God. Now look at number four, you need to balance it with this: Jesus challenged them and trained them. At one point, he's so frustrated with Peter and, and Peter trying to talk him out of the cross that Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. I mean, and Jesus challenges them to, to live by faith. Jesus trained them. He sent them later in, in, in Luke in what we call the limited commission where he sends them out to, to preach and to cast out demons and do miracles. Then he, he brings them back and he, he downloads it with them. He talks about it. He trained them. And then finally, Jesus empowered them. You see, there had to come that point where Jesus handed this off to these guys. That's what he was alarmed about back in Luke chapter 6. His days are numbered. What do you do? What you do is the next three years, he poured himself into these men, and then he empowered them. He basically says to them at the end of every gospel, What you have seen me do with you, all these things we just listed, I want you to now do them with other people. You are my witnesses. So here's the good news this morning. Jesus was able to pass it on. Now maybe that doesn't surprise us because he, my goodness, he's Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I'm sort of intimidated by Jesus. I mean, he's perfect, of course. But here's, here's the really cool news this morning. Not only did Jesus pass it on, the apostles that he passed it on, passed it on to the next generation who passed it on over 2,000 years later to us. These 12 men literally became what Jesus said they would be the foundation of the church. Now, I'm not so intimidated by them. I mean, if that ragtag group of people can be successful at passing on their faith, so can we. And my friend, that's the challenge that I have for you and I today. That we we get intentional about passing on our faith. I understand the feelings of Joe Shulam who's hitting that table and saying, my big regret, I baptized all these people, but my big regret is nobody seems to have the same evangelistic fervor that I had to reach the next generation. I understand that. The church is facing that. Many of you fathers and grandfathers, you're facing that. But Here's the good news is you never give up. Jesus wasn't always successful with these guys. He wasn't successful with all of them, but he kept on giving. He kept on taking them back. He kept on forgiving, and he never gave up. So my challenge to you and I today is that we get serious about passing our faith on. If you're a dad today and you're struggling and you need us to pray for you, if you're a leader in this church and and you want to make sure the next generation gets it and you need some prayers if you're one of those people that you grew up in a Christian home and people poured into you and gave to you, but somehow you've gone astray, if these stories tell you nothing else, they tell you, you are welcome back. These guys weren't perfect. You hadn't been perfect. And you don't have to be perfect to pass it on. But my friends, every one of us is sitting here today Because someone passed it to us. And today's challenge is that we get intentional about passing it on. So today, if you want us to pray for you about that, or if today you're just, you see through these stories that Jesus is so wonderful. And, and, and you see the way he treated them? Here's the, here's, here's the point for you. That's the way he treats you. And you want to follow Jesus today? Meet me up on this front row while we stand together and sing.